In my place condemned, he stood the biblical pattern of the atonement. And this is part 12. The other parts are online. Two more messages in this series. This morning, substitutionary atonement, dealing with objections. And there are objections, and I want to look at them. The text we're going to start with, always have a Bible in church in some form or another. Please bring your Bible to church. Substitutionary atonement, dealing with objections. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 21 to 24. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. For since in the wisdom of God, so God had a plan when he put the gospel into motion. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So God designed it so this isn't something like people would come up with on their own. In God's wisdom, he said, it's not going to be the result of human wisdom and planning. Not the way you think it ought to be done. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly. So it's going to look like foolishness to people. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Not everyone's going to believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. We're not going down those roads. That's what Paul is saying. But we preach Christ crucified. See these words? A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Offensive to Jews. Ridiculous to everybody else. God says, this, this was my plan. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So in the final two messages in this series, I want to deal, albeit too briefly probably, although you might not feel that way, I want to deal with some of the more common objections to the doctrine that Jesus died for my sins on the cross, providing two things. Expiation, which is the removal of my guilt before God, and propitiation, which is the removal of God's wrath from the sinner. Expiation, propitiation. I've used those words a few times. You need to know them. The idea that Jesus died the just for the unjust. That's the wording of the scriptures. That just has a barbaric ring to a lot of people. That God the Father sending God the Son to die in my place has been called cosmic child abuse from within the ranks of evangelicalism probably shouldn't shock us as much as it does. And, and it is kind of wearing out a little bit. That's the reason I chose to open with this text. If some people today find the view of the atonement suspect and unsellable to the modern and postmodern mind, and I'll show you that that's exactly what many objectors think, then it's important to know that this 
message of the cross was no more popular in the marketplace of Paul's day. It's always been so, always will be so. By the way, sorry, camera guys, I didn't warn you about this. Somebody, can anybody see that if I hold it real still? Is it, can you see it? You watch, they're very good, these guys. Someone's going to do something really cool. <laughs> now can you see anything? Look at that, right there. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? What a fabulous little book by Larry Hurtado. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? I recommend it. It's an excellent, excellent book. Actually, I'm not sure you can get it, but I'm recommending it. It's just an astounding reminder, uh, brilliantly argued with all sorts of data, that if you think the gospel is hard in today's world, you should have seen what it was like to follow Jesus in the early church age. You have no clue how offensive the gospel is. Back to our opening text. If we didn't actually see the words printed on paper, we'd never believe the idea that Paul is trying to paste in our minds. Paul says, he says, God designed the means of my redemption to be counterintuitive to what the wisdom of religious seekers would ever dream up. Shockingly, Paul says God used all the might of his unlimited wisdom to come up with a plan of redemption precisely so that it wouldn't fit into the cultural expectations of the day. Think about that. In the wisdom of God, 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. That's, that's truly an astounding sentence. Don't get used to reading it. But we still want to try to communicate the message of Christ's atonement to our generation, and that means that with all the love we can muster, we want to confront the barriers to its reception. The idea here isn't merely one of winning arguments. The passion is to honor Father God's method of glorifying himself rather than us. So we're, we're pleading for the beauty of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf as the sinless Lamb of God dying in our place. Before we list some of the common objections, we need to remember we've, we've already dealt with what may be the most common objection of all in our last couple teachings. The most common objection to penal substitution is that it's not the only model of atonement in the Scriptures. And I took two Sundays recognizing that and dealing with that. Christ died as our example in the face of suffering and persecution, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. Christ died as our victor over Satan and the powers of darkness, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. No question about that. And I can't take time to rework all the points of those past teachings. But, but 
Suffice it to say that while those passages express wonderful truths about the atonement, they aren't separate views or standalone views of Christ's death, but they're the powerful results of Christ dying in our place, bearing our sins, and God's justice against sin. Now we move to other objections. I'm going to consider two today, all right? So point number one. Note the quotation marks. These aren't my thoughts. This is what you hear people say. Penal substitution isn't a concept our culture easily understands or will embrace. It doesn't feel like it addresses the needs people actually have. And let's face it, words I've been using this morning, expiation, propitiation, atonement. You're not likely to bump into those in casual conversation with your friends this week. We live in a world that isn't actually isn't even warm to the idea of transgression and punishment. These are old world concepts. They, they leave the church kind of out in the cold in relating to the contemporary world. In their book, Recovering the Scandal, Joel Green and Mark Baker say this, quote, if at least to a significant degree, penal substitutionary atonement has been a cultural product of life in the West, of course, that's not where it came from, but that's what he says, is it any surprise that proclamation of the gospel grounded in this theory have tended to fall on deaf ears? Steve Chalk, Alan Mann, in their book, The Lost Message of Jesus, say, quote, people are desperate for a message they can buy into, buy into. That they can see will make a difference to them and to the world in which they live. Truth is, you can't engender a sense of lostness or need into people simply by pointing out that they're sinners. It just doesn't work anymore. And a pretty heavyweight scholar, Paul Fides, in his book, Past Event and Present Salvation, says this, quote, John Calvin assumes that when law is broken, punishment must always be inflicted. As a matter of fact, this no longer seems as self-evident to us today as it did in past ages. Indeed, every preacher ought to ask himself whether a theory of penal substitution can even be understood in a society where it's no longer possible to use words such as Christ suffered the death penalty for us. Okay, more quotes could be piled up. I just wanted to give you a smattering. You get the picture. The idea is... This message of Christ dying in our place for our sins, bearing God's wrath, it's not going to work anymore because people can't get meaning out of this model of the atonement. They just can't relate to it. So, so how are we going to respond to that? Maybe we should begin by admitting the whole concept of punishment for wrongdoing, period, might be getting harder 
for a relativistic world to appreciate. Once absolute right and wrong blur and merge into a swamp of just majority opinion, a God of blazingly pure holiness seems hopelessly out of touch. Fair enough. And certainly the terms we use are not often heard in conversation. But I think we need to be careful here. Because clearly people can and do learn the meaning of unfamiliar terms all the time. I can imagine sitting down with my grandpa and using the word podcast. Or even commonly, homophobic. I mean, that was an invented word. Don't doctors have to learn medical terms, nurses, and the convoluted names of countless drugs and medicines? What about chemists, lawyers? You ever read a legal document? What about astronauts? I mean, clearly, people aren't unable to learn what words mean. They just have to be taught. We've been doing this for centuries. I mean, just because someone doesn't know the meaning or the importance of a particular truth yet doesn't mean they don't need to hear it. That's a very important point. If the fact that what someone says isn't yet familiar to others means we're not allowed to communicate it, well, that would mean that no one could ever communicate anything new to anyone in any set of circumstances. Tell me what that does to the field of education. It's ridiculous. There are all sorts of things that people don't know, but need to know and need to be taught. The alphabet. Brushing their teeth. These are all learned. But there's also a biblical argument more important to me. A biblical argument to be raised in response to this objection. People... People can't relate to this, Pastor Don. You're, you're just missing them completely with this message. They don't buy into it. And it's, it's simply an undeniable fact that the New Testament never once links the rejection of the essential gospel with cultural irrelevance. That's not the reason people reject the gospel. Turn wherever you want and the explanation for a rejection of the gospel is always consistently the same in the New Testament. Let me show you what it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous so Live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember that phrase, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. See these words, and testify in the Lord? You need, you need to be careful. You, you get it from a lot of people who think, I'm sorry, especially millennial and younger women who think Paul's just this arrogant male chauvinist and I can't stand reading him. And you need to be really careful when you read a phrase like that. Paul says, this I say and testify in the Lord. He's saying, these aren't my words. If you don't like this, reject Jesus. That's what he's saying. Don't talk about Jesus if you don't swallow this, Paul says. So this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are, why do people reject the gospel? Darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. But he's not talking IQ due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous, given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One more. Why do people reject the gospel? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Not believe. So why? Why don't they believe? Now he's going to get the end. This is the judgment. Here's the assessment. The light has come into the world. Why do, well, why do people reject? People have loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates. Oh, it's not ignorance. Hates the light. Does not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. There's just a few examples. I gave you three. I could have listed 20. Pointing out the obvious biblical refrain, repeated over and over, that except in those cases where people have never heard at all, where it's never proclaimed at all, except in those cases, the gospel isn't rejected due to a lack of appreciated relevance. It is rejected precisely because of its recognized demand for repentance and humility by sinners who cherish their present way of life and want to justify it. That's why the gospel is hard to get people to accept. To camouflage this willful rejection, sinners demand that the gospel deal with different needs rather than the central one that God has designed it to meet. But that's not a meaning problem, and it's not a relevance problem. It's a denial problem. Did everybody hear that? It's not a meaning problem. It's not a relevance problem. It's a denial problem. It's a rejection problem. Objection number two. More commonly, you'll hear this. Penal substitution 
is a denial of Jesus' message of love, especially to our enemies. Brian McLaren has, has gotten miles out of this argument. But it's articulated clearly by Stuart Murray Williams when he says, quote, penal substitution is inherently violent and contravenes central aspects of the message of Jesus. Underscore that word contravenes. The dictionary defines that to oppose, to run counter, to contradict. So penal substitution is opposed to the message of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Stephen Chalk and Alan Mann in The Lost Message of Jesus say this. So uh, the argument I'm dealing with here now, I know it's, it, there's a lot to think about. The second arg- objection that I'm dealing with is this gospel of this, this angry God punishing Jesus for my sins. It runs contrary to Jesus, says just forgive, just love, just accept your enemies. They're saying, how do you, how do you put those things together? That's what they're saying. So in the lost message of Jesus, quote, if the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, it makes mockery of Jesus' own teaching and the idea to love our enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. Maybe you've heard that. I mean, certainly we know what's being considered in these objections. Jesus specifically commanded his disciples not to return violence for violence. Matthew 5, 38, 39, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, look at these words, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So the objection being considered here that this idea of the atonement runs contrary to the teaching of Jesus. It isn't, it isn't wrong in what it says about Jesus' teaching. That's not where the mistake is. It's wrong in what it assumes about God. Because the assumption assumes that just because, try and follow this, just because it's wrong for me as a Christian to take vengeance, then it must also be wrong for God to take vengeance. Do you all see that? That's the conclusion that they're reaching. This idea of substitutionary atonement just runs contrary to the teaching of Jesus because Jesus says, forgive your enemies and if they're violent towards you, just turn the other cheek. And they're saying, if that's the teaching of Jesus, then God shouldn't do that either. I want to show you why that doesn't fly. We're specifically told that we're not to do as God does with wrongdoers. Did everybody hear that sentence? We're specifically commanded not to do as what God does do with wrongdoers. Don't take my word for it. Here's the command. Same thing that Jesus said. Probably where Paul gets the idea. Repay no one evil for evil. There you go. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of God. If possible, as it depends upon you, live peaceable with all. Beloved, 
Never avenge yourselves. See, and so far, we're all pretty pleased with these instructions. That's what Jesus said. See, there. Never avenge yourselves, beloved. So he's talking to Christians, clearly. Why am I not to avenge myself when you wrong me? Well, leave it to the wrath of God. What? Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I, I will repay, says the Lord. This is profound. It's missed so many times. The reason we mustn't repay evil for evil is because vengeance isn't mine, it's the Lord's. Vengeance is mine. I have no right to take vengeance. A, I'm not very good at measuring everyone's motives. I can be wrong. I can misunderstand. I can forget easily that I'm as big a sinner as the one who wrongs me, right? Who, who am I to judge? Who am I to take vengeance? And so the command is clear. Don't you dare, Jesus and Paul, don't you dare take revenge when you're wronged. Why? Because that's God's job to take vengeance on those who do wrong. In other words, don't assume because I'm commanded not to take vengeance, then God ought not to take vengeance. That's just a huge, huge category blunder. The solid logic in trusting in the just wrath of God against sin goes much further. The truth is the exact opposite of what chalk and man state. Remember this quote? If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God toward humankind, but born by his son, it makes mockery of Jesus' own teaching, love your enemies and refuse to repay evil with evil. In fact, the exact opposite is true. It's precisely the justice of God revealed against sinners that leaves me free to treat them with grace and with mercy and with love. I don't have to even up any scores. It's stunning to me that chalk and man can actually quote those words from Romans 12 and not notice the whole context of the passage. Let me give you a little more of Paul's quote. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. We looked at this. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary. So, so vengeance is God's. What does that do for me? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is only when people are freed to worship a God who exercises divine judgment on the cross for human sin, it is only then that we're freed up not to avenge wrongdoings ourselves. Once confidence in the atonement 
the substitutionary atonement of God to punish sin, if that disappears, then I have no option but to get even myself. No one else is going to do it. That's where violence comes from. I'm almost done. I want to finish with a, I've read a lot of more negative quotes. I've been rereading a wonderful book, wonderful book called On a Hill Too Far Away, Putting the Cross Back into the Center of Our Lives. It's by John Fisher. And this is a, a bit of a longer quote, so just settle back, listen to these words, but don't drift off to sleep. Because these are excellent words. I, I was going to just do it myself, and I thought, I can't say it as well as this is said. The debate about Christ's death on the cross and its personal relevance to you or me seems like it may go on indefinitely. But the significance of the cross and its purpose in the world is unaltered by what we happen to think about it. Jesus Christ's death on a cross does not have to be ratified by anyone. The gospel does not have to move me emotionally before it can save me. The Son of God died. He really died on a real wooden cross on a rocky hillside in human history for the sins of the world. You and I were not here to see it or hear it, but God saw it, God approved of it, and therein lies its great significance. This perspective is sorely missing today in a Christianity that works so hard to make itself acceptable. In an attempt to simplify the gospel, to make the gospel make sense to minds that do not want to have to adjust very much, we have selected those parts of it that are compatible with our popular culture. And we assumed we were doing God a big favor by getting this concept down to a level where so many folks can follow along in an attempt to get people to accept Jesus as their personal savior. We are altering the picture of Jesus we present in order to make it more easily acceptable. I think that's a profound, profound quote. The conclusion of the matter, it's a different kind of message, I know. The conclusion of the matter is the power of the cross simply stands. Like it, don't like it, accept it, reject it. God has never done a survey yet. He just reveals. That's what makes him God. He does not need any of our approval on what he does. It needs no more defending than a lion needs defending. Just let it loose. Paul reminds us all, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. The lion does not need a manicure. And everyone said, this is truth properly understood that should not make any of us arrogant. but it should help us to be faithful, <laughs> loving, gracious, kind to all enemies. 
never rejecting truth. Church, look at me just for a minute. You know what's happening in so many areas, in so many areas. This culture is very slick. I'm thinking now just, just for example, of the gay movement. What they want to say is that disagreement, disagreement equals hatred. Get any dictionary in the world. Disagreement does not equal hatred. You can disagree without hating. That's what it means to be in the world, but not of it. We don't agree. And what they want to do is say, if you don't agree with me, you, you don't accept me, you hate me. It doesn't follow. And it is massive. It's a massive lie sweeping the culture. And that's just one area, but it's, it's in all sorts of areas. You disagree, that's rejection. You disagree, that's hatred. Now pray again. And so we... We'll never agree with iniquity, but we will always love the sinner. Bless your word to our hearts. There are different kinds of truths. Some just comfort, some soothe. Others are meant to strengthen and deepen our understanding of the gospel. Bless us now as we go into a time of prayer, one for another, shift the gears of the service. Reminding of that devotional I read where give us eyes to see hope. Give us eyes to expect your grace. Give us eyes to see your touch. As we pray one for another in the name of Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.